0: A reading from Haggai chapter 2 verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus said the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer, there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there was but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there was but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid consider is the seed yet in the barn indeed the vine the fig tree the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing but from on this day forth I will bless you the word of the Lord
1: Thank you, Julie,
2: for that. I appreciate it. Um, Bow with me in prayer as we start. So, Father, thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that we get to uh, lift song to you and extol your virtue and your character. And now um, to sit under the teaching of your word to be moved to obedience by the power of your Spirit. We ask that you clarify things for us. We ask that you sharpen our senses to hear your voice this morning and give us the strength to obey where you're calling us. In your name of pray, Jesus. Amen. In a Harvard Business Review article, Dr. Ayelet Fisher, or Fishbach, sorry, she's a behavioral scientist and a researcher on motivation and decision making sorry states the following social psychologists have known for decades that people are motivated to work harder when others are watching when they are observed people run faster are more creative they think harder about problems and more generally the more people watch what we do the larger and more meaningful our actions feel. She went on to cite various studies observing athletes and students all coming to the same outcome. Having others near us and observing us actually helps us in the motivational sense. She concludes by suggesting that we ought to make our work more visible to others in order to bolster any decline in motivation and also to help us stay on track. Now you can understand clearly that this is a powerful but limited reality. It's a powerful reality because community matters when it comes to accountability. You can just ask the guys in my life group who get the texts of, I'm alone tonight and I would appreciate a check-in tomorrow. And their follow-through the next day. Hey Doug, what's your life and actions been like over the last 24 hours? Truly, It helps me to know that I'll be called upon. But this truth is a limited reality because of probably three reasons that I can think of. Number one, I still have to put my head on the pillow at night and wrestle with the why behind the what of my doing. I can't escape that. I can't escape that at all. That sort of unrest in me that if my motive is wrong, the why behind what I'm doing, if something there is wrong, I can't escape the reality of that when I put my head to the pillow, and it's a haunting reality. The second reason it matters is because obedience to God is always countercultural, and it will be met with resistance. It just will. There's no way around it. You can read in Ezra chapters 4 and 5 from which we get the context for Haggai's prophecy. Okay? In Ezra 4 and 5, um, it's the returned exiles beginning the rebuilding of the temple, and they are met with forcible resistance to stop building, including taunting. In their obedience to God, they ran up against opposition, and they faced discouragement and succumbed. That's the whole point behind Haggai's prophecy. It's like, hey, wake up. And then the third reason why it's a limited reality, Dr. Fishbach's suggestion of making sure that everybody sees my work, is because blessing that comes by way of obedience is not always immediate. Think of a fruit tree. What's the last thing that's offered from the tree? The fruit. It takes time to develop. It would be great if I could obey God now and have a blessing simultaneously. But God doesn't often work like that. He wants obedience that is built through the long haul. And so you see in Ezra chapter 6 what happens four years after He was giving them the command to rebuild the temple. They're finally now rebuilding the temple, and it's done. It took four years, like four, four and a half years. So it takes time. So the heart in obedience, it matters to God. If you get nothing else today, walk away with that reality that the heart in obedience matters to God. So the question then, uh, because most of us read things like tucking holy meat in the fold of a garment, and we think, what's Cody doing, just trying to steal some food from his favorite restaurant? No, it it means something. It means something, but most of us don't grasp it on the first read. So we're looking this morning then, how does Haggai actually approach motives for these returned exiles? Well, first, He begins by asking the priests two questions. The people who were supposed to be leading the people and understanding motives of the heart in obedience, he asked them two questions. And the two questions are about their ritual purity. They're about how they're acting and what they're doing. The second thing that he does is he appeals to their self-awareness by essentially asking them this question. How's half-hearted obedience working out for you? Isn't the harvest like half of what it should be? And when you go to get wine from your wine vats, it's even less than half? Can you not see the connection? And then the third thing, he, he makes an appeal to them and a bold claim that God will bless the obedience of his children. I am not sure what I'm doing. Am I hitting something, Travis? All right. Sorry, me and non-movement and preaching don't really go hand in hand. So number one, catching holiness. Talking about the meat in the fold of a garment. Verses 12 and 13 kind of give us a backdrop here. But the basic idea is just this. Just doing religious stuff doesn't make one closer to God. Clear and simple. Verses 12 and 13 say this. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone is um, unclean by contact with a dead body, touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So the basic premise here is that Haggai is communicating that the transfer of impurity is easier than the transfer of holiness. You're like, well, why does that really matter? Um, where do we spend the bulk of our time? Who do we spend the bulk of our time with? How does that rub off on us? It shapes us, it forms us. Essentially, what he's saying is evil has a greater infectious power than that of holiness. And then in verse 14, he says this. Then Haggai answered. Notice the distance that he puts. He's speaking for the Lord, but listen to how cold and distant he sounds. He says, then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and this nation before me declares the Lord. So every work of their hands. He's, it's very impersonal. And essentially, the people imagined that external observances were enough to secure God's favor even when they were deliberately disobeying God in more important matters. So let me break that down for us real quickly. Have you ever been there? I'm showing up to church on Sunday. I'm reading my Bible. I'm actually, I'm like, I even raise my hands in worship. So, I mean, that means like seriously legit, right? Like, I'm doing the stuff, God. I'm doing the stuff. How is it then that I'm not getting the blessing? What is happening here? What's going on? You see, to them, a pure and sincere heart was unimportant. In other words, they were outwardly religious, but inwardly they were unclean. Jesus had encounters all the time with the Pharisees, and even illustrated that they needed saving from their good works. In Matthew 23, verses 26 to 28, he says this, You blind Pharisee. This is where Jesus really gets heated. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Two-faced is another way to say it. For you are like a whitewashed tomb, which outwardly appears beautiful, but within is full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear outwardly righteous to others but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Does it matter so much to you that you appear righteous to others when you really aren't? That's what he's saying. Is the approval of others of such esteemed value that you're willing to sacrifice the pleasure of God? Man. And maybe from a truth to life perspective, do you use God to hide from God? Do you use God to hide from God? I'm doing the stuff. I'm showing up where I need to show up. I'm saying what I need to say. Get off my back. And all along, God's like, I just want your intimate friendship. Secondly, I, I frame it this way. It's almost as though Haggai is saying, how's that working for you? And, and the idea here in verses 15 through the first part of 19 is just the fact that half-hearted obedience, it leads to apathy, it leads to self-indulgence, and ultimately to the need for repentance. You can't go halfway. Verse 15 begins with this phrase, now then. And I love this word, Now. Because there's such an urgency to it. There's such a, like, it's decisive. It's like, it has to happen. You can't pause here. There's not like a pump the brakes, consider the situation, maybe weigh your pros and cons. No, he's saying, now. Now. And in the kindest way that I can possibly say it, delayed obedience is disobedience. When you know what you're supposed to do or ought to do, and you choose to wait, that's a problem. It wreaks havoc in your lives and the lives of those around you. Hebrews 3, verses 7 and 8 say, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. It's a reference to people who had been freed, who had been led through a body of water and out into an expansive place, and they actually opted to return to slavery in their hearts. And he's saying, look, what are you doing? What are you doing? It just doesn't make any sense. And then in verse 15, he says, now then, consider. From this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? There's that question. How's it working for you? And then in verse um, 16, he just kind of goes on to talk about what happens with this harvest. He's talking about, you're going to the barn, essentially, to say, hey, do we have 50 measures of grain here? No, you've got like half that. Do you, do you have uh, a lot of wine? No, you've got like even less than half of that. So the very crop that was supposed to produce a bountifully was not. And they were, they were coming to their senses and seeing that. He says, consider from this day onward. The New Living Translation actually says it really well. It says, look at what's happening to you. You know, often... Um, I have the pleasure and joy of counseling. And I do a lot of it. And one of the questions that I first ask when people come walking into my office and I have a seat is just like, hey, what brings you here? And and what are you attempting to address it? Like what's what's one way that you're addressing this this ailment, this sickness, this challenge, this whatever. And oftentimes they will say, Well, uh, you know, I've I've like uh I'm really trying to not look at anything bad online anymore. Okay. And, and so what are you doing? Well, uh, you know, I, 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 I tell myself not to do it. Okay. And then I just always ask a real simple question. And How's that working for you? It's not meant to be a, a sideways dig. It's more meant to just make us confront this reality that usually we're the ones who get us into the mess. Right? And somehow we have this deluded concept that I'm also the one to deliver myself. And I'm like, no, you need a redeemer. <laughs> I need a redeemer. There's, there's no part of me that possesses this ability that can just up myself right out of my problems. I created the crud that I'm walking in and somehow I think I know best how to get out. And Haggai's like, it doesn't work like that. You need the Lord. You can't just do it that way. And so then he he goes on to refer to these crops, and he says blight and mildew and hail. And just real simply, blight is just, it's, it's a scorching east wind. Every farmer in here will like immediately recognize, okay, drought and hot wind from a certain direction, not good, okay? And then he talks about mildew, You know, disease of the plants that causes discoloration. You know, if if blight is this idea of conditions caused by dry heat and hot winds, mildew is caused by conditions of excessive moisture. Actually, Middle Eastern farmers would have seen these things as mutually exclusive, meaning they're not happening in the same season. Or if they are, it's at opposite ends of the season. So, translation, this is a pattern. (laughs) This is a a pattern of like, hey, I'm going to try to do this myself. I'm going to tell myself to go to bed and not look at things. Or I'm going to tell myself to do X, Y, or Z, and I'm just going to manage my own mess. And and guess what? It's going to be hot east winds, or it's going to be mildew. And if it's not going to be mildew, it's going to be hail. Now, if you're a, a returning exile, you've just spent 70 plus years in exile just being beaten and just like a slave, Okay, And then you come back. That's like the second time now that you've been delivered from slavery as a people. You know, For 400 plus years you were slavery in Egypt. And so when he says, I also sent hail to destroy your crops. The, the person reading this or hearing this message is going, wait, crud, you got to be kidding me. Like, we're just like the Israelites that were delivered. And the Egyptians suffered a total loss of all of their farming income by hail. Like it was so heavy, so thick, it just destroyed everything. And now God turns the tables and he's like, I'm doing it to you. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> like, really? That's, that's your plan, God? They would have immediately thought of the plagues. He says in verse 17, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and and hail. When he says, all the products of your toil, remember, in the garden, we were originally created for partnership and work was good and work was wonderful. Work turned to toil after the garden. And when work turned to toil, that means I work really hard and get half of what I hoped. And so we're seeing, he's he's saying, look, you're trying so hard that I struck your toil. And even the smaller amount that you were hoping to get, you're getting less. You're like, man, that's really mean. God did that? I think this is the truest test of love of God toward his children. That consequences were lovingly put into place before these exiles returned and broke them. Then when they experienced the smaller harvest and the hot east winds and the blight and the mildew and the the hail, the hope was for a humble return to God. From a truth to life perspective, you see Hosea say it this way. and, And listen to the language and the movement that Hosea is bringing out. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down. That he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. That we may live before him. That's an idea of living in his presence. And then verse 3 of Hosea chapter 6. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out, meaning his judgment, is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains. So maybe it's just helpful if we say it this way. The pain we feel in our sin is meant to adjust our affections. The affections of our heart that led us away in the first place. Because that's the connection to your motive. If you're like, well, I want to understand why I do what I do, then read your Bible a lot. Listen to the Lord. Take pause. But then change. Because the pain that you're experiencing in your relationships, the pain that you're experiencing in your workplace, the pain that you're experiencing in school, those are loving consequences of a father who says, go ahead and manage it yourself and see what happens. Tell me how that's working for you. So, catching holiness, how's that working for you? And finally, blessing. The idea here at the second half of chapter 2, verses 19, is this idea that blessing follows obedience, and it's a promise. It says, but from this day on, I will bless you. Because they're still thinking, "If if I obey now, then like right now, I should also have a blessing. Yes, you will be blessed. But there is an understanding that you ought to walk in it and move in it and move toward it. The the direct challenge then to the people is, will you take God at his word? Like if I obey now and I don't have a blessing in the same moment, am I okay to take God at his word? How scandalous it is for me to believe that God would make good on a promise when he's never failed one yet in all of years of scripture. And you read, he doesn't fail promises, but I'm going to be the first exception to the rule, so I'm going to withhold my obedience. How silly is that? How silly is that? How crazy is it to believe that somehow my lack of obedience is going to manipulate God or control God into some level of blessing me before I obey, like somehow I get an advance on that promise? Listen, your advance on the promise of obedience was Jesus on the cross. Jesus out of the grave. Jesus rising back to life. Jesus ascending to the Father and Jesus giving the Holy Spirit. That's your advance payment. That is your advance payment. That's what you get. For obedience of faith. That's what you get. Like, well, I'd really want someone to like me. Jesus does. Next question. <laughs> okay? So to close, I guess I just want to offer an invitation. You know, Dr. Fishbach pointed out at the beginning that we perform better when others are watching. I would just argue that with the wrong motives... This is so hazardous to our union with Christ. So hazardous. So last week, we were invited by Brady to fixed hour prayer. You know, set an alarm on your phone. Pray as you can. One minute, five minutes, whatever it is. Lean in. I want to extend a further invitation to silence and solitude two twin disciplines of the Christian faith or practices, as I like to call them. And they're just simply this. You know, solitude is getting alone free of distraction, entertainment, work with just the intentional and pure focus of God himself. His character, his word. I'm, I'm getting away from other humans for that express purpose. Silence Is the absence of noise, of the chaotic busyness, even of speaking. For those of us who are extroverts and enjoy lots of words, these could be two of the more challenging disciplines for you. But I think we'll see from the life of Jesus the point. So... In all things, in all practices, in things that we do to cultivate a deep, rich, inner life with the Lord, we want to look at Jesus first. What were his practices? How did we see him responding? Well, in Matthew 4, Jesus spent 40 days alone in the desert. In Luke 6, he spent a whole night in prayer before he chose the twelve. In Matthew 14, he hears of John the Baptist's death and he withdraws to a desolate place to be alone. Also in Matthew 14, after feeding 5,000, he goes up into the hills by himself. Or in Mark 1, while it's still dark, he rises early as was his custom and goes to a lonely place to pray. Or in uh, Luke 5, says that Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness to pray. Or, in probably the most recognizable concept of silence, solitude, prayer, in Matthew 26, Jesus invites three of his friends with him. And in his greatest hour of suffering and difficulty, he says, come watch with me, meaning come pray. They fall asleep. They're a little stressed. We'll give him a pass. But why all of this? Why would Jesus need this? I think because hurry is the enemy of a deep spiritual life with God. Speed doesn't make us hear him faster. It actually causes us not to hear him at all. And so Jesus instilling himself to hear the voice of God. He becomes somebody who is able to fully obey and fully love. From a solitude perspective, when you get alone and away from other people, there's no one to perform for. You've heard the phrase audience of one. And in an audience of one, where the greatest needed act of performance was done by Jesus himself, it removes the pressure for me to be with him. Just me and him. How else do you think Jesus could handle the petty arguments of his disciples, the ridiculous accusations of other people, or all of the pressures that ministry being the Messiah and the Son of God required? if not for solitude. Well, what about silence? In silence, we let God speak for us. You see, God is the one who justifies. That means God is the one who makes things right. How do you think Jesus was able, just think about it, how do you think Jesus was able to remain silent when he was accused? When he was accused of being and doing all sorts of things that just weren't true, how in the world did Jesus have the fortitude, the strength of mind, the, the, the content of character to just say nothing? And you're like, well, I mean, it's, he was Jesus, right? Well, then when Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 2 that you have the mind of Christ, Seems, <laughs> seems like he's after something there. And so my question, just from a standpoint of justification, if somebody says something horrible about you or your character, how difficult is it to just stay silent? How hard? How hard is it to just... God justifies, not me. You know what happens when I try to justify? I screw things up big time. I end up accusing somebody else. I end up cutting them down. I end up finding any other comparable option, like a realtor finding comparable homes. I'm like, okay, this person, this, 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 and this, but I'm up here. Right? Enter social media. Why do I post something on purpose so that people will see? What's the point? So then some suggestions and then we'll have a closing song. One suggestion is digital solitude. I think it's uh, better than 90% of the American public owns a smartphone. So my encouragement and my invitation is take a digital rest for a period where you neither read nor post anything. Maybe that's when you get home on Sundays after church from like 1 o'clock until the next morning. Don't even bother yourself with it. Take a digital solitude. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I I can't do this. I've got like five kids or six kids. and uh, It's too chaotic. How about that moment when you wake up in the morning and like maybe the little munchkins aren't awake yet or maybe they are and they're still they still haven't somehow invaded your space that little 5 minute window where you're just kind of laying in your bed just be still just be still focus on the goodness the character the nature of god be silent before him or what about the morning commute to work or the commute home turn off the podcast be in silence don't listen to talk radio Just be in silence. Or at nighttime, after everybody's in bed, taking a few moments to just, I'm just going to rest here. My intent and my focus is to just listen for the Lord. All right, I'm going to close in prayer as the girls come up to sing. I just want to invite you that as they finish, you're welcome to leave quietly And if you want to stay here, there will be people to pray. Um, If you need to do business with the Lord and just kind of have a moment of silence in his presence, feel free to stay after. But Father, we thank you so much for this time that the heart in obedience matters to you. We need you, Jesus. We need your love. We need your mercy. We need your strength. We need your help. We want you to have every part of us. And so we surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
3: have my heart, my will, my soul. Jesus, have my hopes, my dreams, my world. With joy I lay your church, your love, your bride, the joyful which you free.
2: that you want all of us. Strengthen our hearts to know you, to press into you, and to not manage it on our own. It's in your strong name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed. If you want to head to lunch in the all-purpose room, we'd love to have you.